To binge all episodes of The Killing Month, August 1978, join Wondery Plus and enjoy ad-free listening to over 40,000 episodes, early access to your favorite podcasts, and more. Find Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This podcast contains descriptions of violence, including sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. Just in 1978, Chester County had more homicides than any county in the Delaware Valley, excluding the city of Philadelphia. That's former Chester County Chief Detective Charlie Zagorski talking to daily local news reporter Bruce Mowdy in 1979, just before the Johnston brothers went on trial for murder. We had more homicides than those counties in 78. We were second in in rapes, second in robbery, first in burglary per 100,000. And that tells you something. That tells you something. While the Johnsons certainly weren't the only criminals operating in the area at the time, their reign in the region was notorious. And for those who dared to cross their path, or even worse, to steal with them, there was that cardinal rule again the one the Johnston gang lived by. In their Ten Commandments, there was only one, and that is you don't rat us out or we'll kill you. You could do anything you wanted. You could rape your son's girlfriend. You could beat your wife. But what you didn't do was to rat on the family. That was the one bond, not snitching. After Robin Miller told Bruce Johnston Jr. that she was raped, Junior violated that bond, and a cascade of vengeance followed. They killed all those boys. You know, it just, it was horrific. All the murders were ruthless and brutal. A 15-year-old girl lost her life in, in a terrible way from really terrible people. How senseless it was to destroy these boys' lives with their whole life in front of them for what? What I know, they killed them boys over John Deere tractors. I think that you have to go back to, this was all about tractor parts. I had nothing to gain. It was stealing tractors, for God's sake. This is not a family of love. It was a family of crime. They weren't family. I don't think they were capable of having that emotion. I can't explain it. I can't understand how you can shoot a member of your own family, your stepson, and put a contract out on your own son. That's just, I I can't deal with it. I can't explain it. I, I can't relate to it. And I think that's one of the reasons that this case really gathers all this attention so many years later. It's hard to imagine, right? Thinking about wanting to kill your son, killing your stepson. I guess for their survival, they would do anything and they didn't care who they had to kill. Believe me, these people, they were different. They were different. You know, they scared the hell out of you. Were you afraid of them? Oh, I was concerned. Let me tell you something. I I was concerned, but I knew we were going to get them, and they knew we were going to get them. And in 1980, they did get them. 
all three brothers were convicted of multiple counts of murder and eventually sentenced to multiple consecutive life terms in prison. It's a legacy of Jesse James or Billy the Kid or, you know, they will be known as Chester County's most notorious criminals. Hopefully no other family will come out and outdo them. But the story of the Johnstons doesn't end with their convictions. Because, of course, this is the Johnston gang. Not even prison bars could contain their unquenchable campaign for freedom. I'm Amanda Lamb. From WREL Studios, this is The Killing Month, August 1978. The story of a family crime empire that came crumbling down when the bodies started piling up. Two of the Johnston brothers were sentenced in October of 1983. Judge Leonard Sugarman sentenced David Johnston to four consecutive life sentences in prison, calling his life a scourge to the people of Chester County. David said in court, quote, I'd just like to state that the names mentioned here today, I had nothing to do with killing. I'm innocent. Norman Johnston received the same sentence for killing Robin Miller and three members of the Kitty Gang at the Brandywine Game Preserve in 1978. At his sentencing, Norman said, quote, I would like to point out to the court, judge, that I stand here convicted of four murders I did not commit. And in March 1986, Judge Sugarman sentenced Bruce Johnston Sr. to six consecutive life terms, calling him a, quote, backshooting, gutless child killer, end quote, for his role in Gary Crouch's murder, Robin Miller's murder, and the murder of three Kitty Gang members and James Sampson. And without the Johnston brothers, well, the gang, as everyone knew it, pretty much disbanded. Also, many of the associates were still facing federal charges for the thefts they had committed with the gang. So everyone was either going to prison or trying to live out the rest of their lives under the radar, away from the glaring spotlight the trials had put on them. But just because the Johnstons had been put away doesn't mean they gave up. In February of 1992, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court heard Bruce Johnston Sr.'s appeal and affirmed his conviction and his sentence. Judge Sugarman called the ruling a relief because it meant that Bruce Sr. would live the rest of his life behind bars. Bruce Mowdy interviewed Judge Sugarman, who has since passed away, in 1993 for his radio show called The Chester County Beat. Even then, the reporter wasn't totally sure that the lengthy appeals process had ended. It really hasn't ended yet. Could you, it could it you... has ended, really. I'm pleased to tell you that I wrote opinions on appeal in each of the three cases. As you know, we're required to write opinions when there's an appeal. And I was affirmed in each of the three brothers' cases by the Superior Court and by the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. That pretty well exhausts what they can do. Uh, I immediately removed their lawyers when the Supreme Court refused to hear their cases. 
and now they're on their own. And if they want to try the federal system, they can do it. But there's very, very little chance of success. Despite this declaration from Judge Sugarman that it was over, David and Norman continued their appeals. The last one was filed in 2011 and claimed, among other things, that the prosecution had withheld key evidence that could have exonerated them, that they had ineffective trial attorneys, and that the judge was biased against them. The three brothers clearly wanted out of prison, but one of them decided the courts weren't the answer. In 1999, Norman Johnston escaped almost two decades after he was convicted of killing four people. According to the prison warden, Norman made a dummy that he placed in his prison bunk in a fetal position beneath the covers to fool the guards and buy himself more time. He stuffed the dummy with material from pillows, dressed it in a T-shirt, used discarded clippings to give it hair, and made the legs out of paper bags. Norman then sawed through a steel bar and metal mesh that covered the window in his first-floor cell with a hacksaw. He had lost weight in preparation for the escape and was able to squeeze through it into the small exercise pen. Norman then slid through two fences to freedom. When Norman escaped, a childhood friend of Robin's told the Philadelphia Inquirer that it felt like the boogeyman was loose again, and it gave her goosebumps. I got a call, I don't know who it was from, I think it was somebody from the state police who just said to me, I just want to let you know, Bill, that Norman Johnson has escaped and he may be on his way to your house. My dad had an important job when I was growing up, a dangerous job, even though I didn't really understand it at the time. I have an early memory of my brother and me playing outside in the driveway in front of our house. I'm on my brother's big wheel. My dad rushes out, picks me up off the red and yellow plastic vehicle, and hustles both of us into the house. Something was happening, and he needed to protect us. That's my childhood memory. As an adult, I now know that my dad had a lot of experience with threats to his safety. When he was just an assistant district attorney, he prosecuted several members of a motorcycle gang called the Pagans. The case stemmed from a shootout in Parksburg, Pennsylvania in 1969, where a black man named Harry Dickinson was killed and eight other black victims were wounded in what appeared to be a racially motivated shootout involving members of the motorcycle gang. My dad was responsible for prosecuting them. One night, the state police called my dad and told them they had intercepted members of the gang headed to our house. State police stopped them. Uh, there were about 30 of them on their motorcycles. What they intended to accomplish when they got to my house, I don't know. It certainly was not cookies and ice cream. But 
They stopped him, and that was the end of it. So when Norman Johnston escaped in 1999, my dad called me and told me to be aware of the situation. I was living in North Carolina by then, working as a television reporter. I was pregnant with my first child at the time. But I was pretty sure Norman didn't have the skill set to track me down in another state. So I wasn't too worried about myself. But I was worried about my dad. Were you afraid? I was concerned, sure. I was concerned. And they had marked state police car in the, in the circle in the driveway. And they would get out and go around the house several times at night. A New York Post article recapped the manhunt for Norman with a dramatic headline, quote, The search for Norman Johnston, hillbilly killer, eludes cops in three states. Spotting Norman became like a game of Where's Waldo, with lots of after-the-fact reports of sightings. He was seen at a local park in Pennsylvania, walking near a group of astronomers who were setting up their telescopes. Two park rangers spotted him, and one of them pulled his gun out and pointed it at Norman. Norman ran. The ranger grabbed him. Norman's shirt ripped in the ranger's grasp. And then the escaped inmate took off into the woods. And the sightings continued. Norman was later spotted at an antique store in Maryland, asking for directions. Then at a Walmart. At a place called Ted's Lounge, having a drink. Near a Boy Scout camp. Using a payphone outside a liquor store. The liquor store later put up a sign that read, Run, Norm, Run to capitalize on the publicity surrounding his escape. But somehow, Norman continued to elude capture. He left the liquor store on a motorcycle, and the officers chased him at speeds up to 130 miles per hour. From Maryland, he crossed the state line back into Pennsylvania, ditched the bike, and once again disappeared into the woods. In his final attempt to get away, Norman was at a gas station in Chester County, trying to put gas into a stolen car. But he didn't know how to use the electric pump. The world had left him behind while he was in prison. Almost out of gas, he screeched out of the station, followed by an officer who chased him into a housing development where he ditched the car and ran. Police knew they had him trapped. They surrounded the neighborhood. The next morning, some residents heard noises beneath their deck and called the police. They were in their driveway talking to officers when Norman came strolling up. Officers chased him, and he ran right into a fence where they finally took him into custody. Officers at the scene said Norman seemed exhausted and defeated. He said to them, you guys just don't give up. In response, the officers asked him, was it worth it? And Norman replied, not for 20 days. Ironically, when he was finally interviewed, he said he was coming to my house, but not to get me. He was coming to my house because I had in my files papers that would exonerate him. Uh, which, of course, wasn't true. 
And that probably wouldn't have gone well if he had showed up. No, it would not have gone well, I don't think. Norman was charged with escape and went to trial in July 2000. A jury convicted him in just 15 minutes. He was sentenced to an additional three and a half years in prison, on top of the four consecutive life sentences that he was already serving for the murders. These days, Norman, who is in his 70s, is in a maximum security prison in Marionville, Pennsylvania, just below the New York state line. I wrote him a letter there, asking him for an interview for this podcast. I told Norman exactly who I was, the prosecutor's daughter and a news reporter. Needless to say, I've been through enough during my 44 years of being immured in this concrete tomb to where nothing surprises me anymore. However, getting an inquiry regarding the tragic events surrounding the murders more than 40 years ago from Bill Lamb's daughter was, to put it mildly, surprising. That's my colleague, reporter Eric Miller, reading from the letter I received back from Norman dated November 15, 2022. Ironically, this date is the 50th anniversary of the murders of the two Kennett Square police officers. Probably a coincidence, but still a chilling one. Here's more from that letter. Ms. Lamb, I have no animosity towards Bill Lamb or police investigators in my unfair conviction. In fact, being Bill Lamb's daughter in this instance weighed heavily in your favor because otherwise I would not even have bothered to acknowledge your letter. Naturally, my first instinct was to decline, to dig up unpleasant old memories. So obviously, I'll need time to consider your request. Norman goes on to say in the letter that he believes former daily local news reporter Bruce Mowdy has documents in his files that could exonerate Norman, including letters from witnesses Leslie Dale and Ricky Mitchell. Norman then asked me to do something for him in return for an interview. He asked me to contact Bruce Mowdy and ask him for these documents. He also tells me not to mention that he is the one asking for these items. I have no doubt you're a very smart person, so there may be a possible quid pro quo here. I want a copy of those documents prosecutors and police investigators gave Mowdy, and you want to interview me for the podcast you're working on. He goes on to say in his letter, Miss Lamb, there's nothing unethical if you gave me copies of public documents related to my case, especially if those documents will refresh my memory in preparation for the series of interviews with me you will need. Actually, it is unethical for me to ask another reporter, a reporter who we did an interview with for this podcast, to give me documents under false pretenses, and then for me to share those documents with someone else. So I did write back to Norman and told him this was not something I was prepared to do for him, but I would still like to speak with him. As of this recording, I have not yet received a response from Norman. Claiming that Bruce Mowdy has information that could exonerate him is not new for Norman. In post-conviction motions filed by Norman and David Johnston in 2009, after Bruce's book, Jailing the Johnston Gang, was published, 
Both brothers claimed Bruce's reporting as evidence that there was information that could have exonerated them that was not presented by their attorneys at the 1980 trials. Among their claims, one, that Leslie Dale had confessed to the ambush. We have not found any evidence of such a confession. Two, threatening letters were sent to the lead investigator and a prosecutor by Leslie and Ricky, saying they would not testify unless certain conditions were met. We made reference to one demand Ricky made in Episode 7 about his dissatisfaction with the health care he was receiving. And three, that there's a photograph of Ricky in a motel room bed holding a bottle of whiskey allegedly given to him by authorities that implied he was plied with alcohol to keep him on the state's side during the trial. There's a photograph in Bruce's book that reportedly depicts this moment. Bruce Mowdy was quoted in a June 25, 2009 article in the Daily Local News regarding these appeals. He said, quote, I don't think anything in the book shows that they were wrongfully convicted. I'm not aware of anything that would have changed the outcome of the trial. I reached out to Bruce again in April of 2023 and asked him to react to what Norman wrote in his letter to me. He said, quote, All the information in my book, Jailing the Johnston Gang, Bringing Serial Murders to Justice, was available during the murder trials of the Johnston brothers. The appeals were ultimately denied by the court. But clearly, Norman has held on to the belief all these years that Bruce Mowdy is somehow the key to his freedom. He goes on to say in his letter to me from prison, In closing, I don't want to mislead you. After everything is said and done, I may still decline to participate in speaking with you about the past. Not because of who you are, but I buried my past many years ago. I'm 72 years old and wise enough to know it's best not to dig up skeletons from the distant past, but I will give it considerable thought. Yes, pretty unfortunate wording here, dig up skeletons. It's hard to believe that this is not purposeful, dark language Norman is using to emphasize his point. Norman continues trying to appeal his case. His last appeal was denied in March of 2012. He told me in his letter he is working on a new one on his own, without the help of an attorney. I would like to hear Norman's story from his lips. Maybe someday. Of course, there is one associate of the gang that, thankfully, I've been able to interview. You met him in Episode 5. The man who used to be called James Disco Griffin, who stole everything from cigarettes to cars with the Johnstons. His career eventually ended up taking quite a turn. I was a big-time superintendent for a construction company and had Corvettes that I didn't have to steal. You know, I bought my own Corvettes. And had an in-ground pool and a nice job, made good money. After fulfilling his obligation to testify against the brothers in two separate trials in 1980, James and his wife, Jeannie, they married in part so she could join him in witness protection, 
bounced around for several years in different locations in the Witness Protection Program. Then they both decided the program wasn't for them. They felt safe with the Johnsons in prison for life. And they didn't want to lose contact with family and friends. And then Jeannie got sick. Cancer. She died in 2003. While James is no longer in witness protection, he did get to keep one thing from the program, his new identity, which allowed him to get a job and remain anonymous as long as he stays clean. Listen, working's a whole lot easier than stealing. A whole lot easier. It's, you don't have to look behind you in the morning when you wake up. You don't have to worry about the cops knocking on your door. I go to work every morning. I have a nice little home in the country, three beautiful cats, a little bit of money saved up that I didn't steal. I'm doing pretty good. My mom's proud of me. She passed away 12 years ago. My wife was proud of me. My family, what little bit of family I have left, they're proud of me that, you know, I don't do what I used to do. And I'm proud of me. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm grateful for, for how I live right now. One of my last questions for James was if he had any regrets about getting a new identity, about cooperating with authorities and testifying against the Johnstons. Not at all. And you know what else? I don't, I don't have any fear of meeting them at the gates of hell because you know what's my worst fear? If they came after me before they died, if they came after me, I would have to kill them and I would be just like them. Coming up, more on the lives of those who tangled with the Johnstons and the lasting legacy of the gang. In 1994, 14 years after the trials, FBI agent Dave Richter got a call from the Philadelphia office. A man had walked in wanting to see Dave, and so the office called him. When Dave asked who it was, he was told the man couldn't speak. So the man wrote down his name. The name on the paper was Leslie Dale. Leslie had spent 16 years in prison before being transferred to a halfway house in March of 1994. He was released because he was dying of cancer. He lost his ability to talk after throat surgery. Days after Leslie reached out to Dave, Leslie made his final trip to the hospital. And that's where Dave, Tom Cloud, and Charlie Zagorski went to see him one last time. Why do you think he wanted to see you guys? Because I think he never had a family. He never had anybody that, that uh, you know, not, maybe he didn't deserve a family. I'm not going to uh, take his uh, point there. 
But we treated him, even though he was what he was, we treated him with respect. Leslie Dale died on March 18, 1994. But he's a hard guy to shake. For Tom Cloud, the memories endure. The undeniable connection made between cops and a snitch. I was sitting on the bed with Leslie when the Phillies won the 1980 World Series. So when when Tug McGraw jumped into Mike Schmidt's arms, I was uh, sitting on the bed with Leslie Dale. And there are other memories for Tom. Three years after the trials in 1983, Robin Miller's mother, Linda, sued the U.S. government, saying they had an obligation to protect Robin Miller, given what they knew about the potential danger surrounding Bruce Jr. The court ruled that the federal government, the FBI, and Dave Richter, and the state police and Tom Cloud had no special obligation to protect Robin or Bruce Jr., because she was not a witness for the state, and Bruce Jr. was not in witness protection at the time of the ambush. There was something I really wanted to know from Tom. Remember, Robin's murder and the Kitty Gang murders happened after the investigators asked the U.S. Attorney's Office to start issuing subpoenas to witnesses to help take the Johnston gang down. I mean, was there guilt? Only in the sense that we should have been able to do something about these guys. You know, they, they shouldn't be out there, you know. Killing people. Yeah, doing this. But, you know, not much because I knew the effort we put in. You know, you hear this all the time, and I'm sure it's true most of the time. But there was, there was no more effort. Now, maybe there was more skill, or maybe something we should have thought of or should have done. That's very possible. But effort, phew, I don't think so. I don't think there was any more effort that could have been done. When I talk to these guys, and they're all guys, with the exception of Prosecutor Dolores Troiani, about the Johnston gang investigation and trials, it's clear it all had a huge impact on their lives. Is it hard to go back to real life after a case like this? Of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Because you're a band of brothers. And, uh, you know, you, you, you have one singular purpose in mind, and that is to convict these guys. Your your eat, drink, sleep, this whole case, and then all of a sudden, it abruptly comes to an end. My dad would go on to become the senior partner in his law practice in Westchester. He helped build it from a small country law firm into a powerful force in the Pennsylvania legal community. In 2003, he was appointed to a one-year term as a justice on the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania. He later went on to win many high-profile cases as a private attorney. When people say to me, what's the best job you ever had, Lamb? Private lawyer, 
assistant DA, DA, or Supreme Court justice? My answer is DA. I mean, that was the best job I ever had. Why? Well, because I think you're wearing the white hat and you're on high silver and all of that kind of stuff. You know, you're doing, you're on the side of God, country, and and justice. And there's no better job than that. And, 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 and you have to realize you hold the lives of a lot of people in your hands. You can never take lightly charging somebody with a crime. Bruce Mowdy asked my dad during an interview in July of 1979 what his plans were after stepping down as DA. My dad said he planned to go back to his private practice to see his law partners more and to spend more time with his wife and kids. This makes me a little sad to hear now because my family did go through some hard times. I never connected it before I started working on this project, but my parents ended up divorcing a few years after the trial. And it's now become clear to me that this kind of all-consuming, intense work can and did take its toll on the families of all the attorneys involved and the investigators. My dad shared with me during multiple interviews for this podcast that he felt like an absentee father back in 1980 because the trials took him away from us, both physically and emotionally, for months at a time. To be clear, I never saw it that way. But it feels important that he shared this with me now as an adult. To know that he was thinking about us, even when he was involved in a major moment in his career, well, it means a lot. In a case that was in large part about a father and a child, as distant as they were, it's hard not to draw some comparisons. My father brought me into his work world to bring us closer together. And Bruce Sr. also brought his son into his world, into his work. Maybe in some small misguided way, he thought this was how you parent. While I didn't become a lawyer like my dad, I did become a crime reporter. Obviously, going to those trials when I was just a young teenager had an impact on me even if I didn't know it at the time. More than 40 years later, my dad still has no regrets about bringing me into the courtroom. One, on the personal level of you finding out, seeing firsthand what your father did. And secondly, uh, you know, it was a very important case and something that, you know, would go in your memory bank, as obviously it did. <laughs> And uh, so, you know, it was the right thing to do. Everything about this case was a big deal to pretty much everyone I spoke to, no matter what they went on to do. Tom Cloud went on to be involved in the investigation of how Penn State University handled the Jerry Sandusky case, the case of a once storied and beloved football coach 
who was eventually convicted of 45 counts of child sexual abuse that was covered up for years. Former Chester County Assistant District Attorney Dolores Troiani also went into private practice and would later represent one of Bill Cosby's sexual assault accusers. Troiani won a defamation suit against a prosecutor who failed to take her client's accusations seriously. Dolores and Charlie Zagorski would end up marrying. Defense attorney Larry Goldberg and one of the photojournalists covering the case also tied the knot after meeting during the trial. Basically, the case was impossible to excise from their lives, for better or for worse. They're all forever connected to it in some way. And for some, the case lingers for other reasons. No, I'll never forget. And I forget a lot of things over the time. But that day in the hotel room, yeah, it does stick with me. That's former motel housekeeper Lisa Harrington, who corroborated Ricky Mitchell's testimony in both trials for the prosecution. Ricky died in prison on November 16, 2004. Lisa will never forget her brief encounter with Ricky shortly after the ambush of August 30th, 1978. The darkness of the room, the creepiness of his voice, the smell of the musty shoes under the red lamps, drying out all that red clay. And I thought, what the hell have these people been doing? It was just the most surreal experience. For former Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Julia Cass, the years of covering the Johnstons were dizzying. There were so many moving parts in the case. It was like a complicated web that she had to pay close attention to so she wouldn't get left behind. And then the cops trying to turn this person and that person and and then finding the bodies. And it was just an ongoing story. And it was the, for me too, it was the, it was the, the father-son element and the sort of how could that be element? How could, peop- how could a father be so cold and not care at all? Be so willing to, to just to kill these boys who admired him. I, I still don't understand that, actually. I still don't understand it. Sometimes the actual story of the Johnstons gets blurred to make more sense of it because it's easier to put it into a neat little box where we can understand it rather than face reality. In 1986, a movie, At Close Range, featuring well-known actor Christopher Walken and rising star Sean Penn, was released in theaters. Some people feel like the movie portrayed a sanitized version of the Johnstons, complete with a folk hero storyline that strayed from the truth. My dad read the script and refused to participate with the production, saying it distorted the facts and glorified Bruce Jr. Bruce Johnston Sr. died of liver disease in Greaterford Prison on August 7, 2002. David also passed away in prison. Again, 
Norman Johnston is the only brother who is still alive, still serving his four consecutive life sentences in a Pennsylvania prison. What Julia Cass said about following the case so closely, but still not understanding it, just rings so true to me. After months of pouring through documents and articles, I still can't quite get my head around how, not the literal how, we know all too well about the gruesome details, but how this could happen from an emotional and personal standpoint. How could someone commit these crimes with no apparent remorse? I still don't have the answer to that. They'd shot or killed their own relatives in horrific ways. They cast aside our most basic sense of duty to protect our children. And all to stay out of prison for a few years? After that, what guiding principles, what sense of humanity could they possibly have left? But something my dad said does resonate with me. He was asked about the possibility that any of the brothers would have ever turned on each other during the trials in order to get a deal, to get a lesser sentence. My dad says it was just not going to happen. The bond between the, the brothers, the bond was too strong that they all, I think, acknowledged and believed in that they would never, ever do anything to, to destroy the relationship amongst the three of them. When it came to that bond, to the bond between Norman and David and Bruce Sr., to their guiding belief that you don't snitch on the family, they did, in the end, hold that one thing sacred. Bruce Jr. has been in and out of prison most of his adult life. In 2001, he was convicted of burglary and drunk driving in Chester County. In 2003, he was convicted of theft in Lancaster County. In 2013, he was arrested on drug charges by the Lancaster County Drug Task Force. He would often get probation, but then violate the terms of that probation when he got a new charge and go back to prison. It's been a vicious cycle. In total, I located 28 court appearances for Junior, dating back to April of 1978. The investigators and prosecutors we interviewed for this podcast tell me they're not surprised about how Junior's life turned out, that he never really had a chance at a productive future, given his background. We're told he's living with friends now, fixing lawnmowers to make a little money, and that he's, quote, doing okay right now. Junior will always be at the heart of this story, the story of August 1978. His love for Robin and rage over what she revealed in that letter was stronger than the code he had been sworn to live by. And it's still hard to get my head around that before all these unthinkable crimes— before all these young people's lives were extinguished, before all that, there was just a young couple in love. I did reach out to Junior through a friend of his on Facebook 
and asked the friend if Junior might be willing to do an interview. The friend told me I would have to pay for the interview, which is something we don't do in the news business. We also used a contact search service to try to track Junior down directly. None of the many numbers I tried led to the Bruce Johnston Jr. So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to hear Junior's story. And I'm not the only one still trying to get answers. I haven't given up on this. Here's Bruce Mowdy. I wrote a letter to Norman Johnson a couple years ago saying, would you talk to me now and tell me what really happened? And he hasn't responded. So the story I haven't written was really one where I could think that a member of the Johnston family would being honest and say, yeah, we did it. And these are the reasons and these are the influence. Yeah, that's the one story I'd love, still love to write. I'm thankful that I got to write this story. I'm especially thankful for all the people who agreed to do interviews with me and to relive this painful part of their history, who agreed to dig deep and try to recall details of events from so many decades ago that affected so many people. But honestly, the best part of this project was sharing it with my father, who is now 83. Besides the interviews, we exchanged many phone calls, sometimes multiple calls a day, about the case, and dozens and dozens of emails. Sometimes I just needed him to confirm a small detail. Other times, I just needed him to explain something. Often, he reminisced, and I just listened. But through all of it, it allowed us an unprecedented period of communication between a father and a daughter. In my mind, my dad has never been an absentee father, but now I can say with great conviction that he has never been more present in my life. Killing Month, August 1978, was reported by me, Amanda Lamb. It was written by me with help from Rachel McCarthy, who also headed up production and sound design. Anita Norman Lee is the director of podcast operations for Capital Broadcasting Company and served as our editorial advisor. Our executive producer is Ashley Talley. Photojournalist Keith Baker recorded most of our interviews. Doug Miller did the final mix. Josh Knapp provided engineering support. Eric Miller voiced Norman's letter for this episode. Susan Mitchell Furr was kind enough to be our first listener and honest enough to give us constructive feedback. A special thanks to Bruce Mowdy, who gave us permission to use many of his recordings from his reporting on the Johnstons and shared detailed information with us from his book, Jailing the Johnston Gang and to Tom Cloud, who provided many photos for our online coverage of this story. Also, thanks to all the other interviewees, 
who reached back more than four decades to share their memories and their time with us for this show. This includes answering many questions in the months following our initial interviews. Also thanks to the Radley Run Country Club for allowing us to use excerpts from the 2010 panel discussion on the case. And thank you for listening to this story, to my story, to my father's story, to the story of all the people connected to this tragedy. Reporting on it for this podcast has been an emotional journey and a privilege.